Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. A 12 by 8 foot garage on a quiet street in Palo Alto is a modest monument to the birthplace of Silicon Valley. It was in this humble shack in 1939 that Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard built their company into a multi-billion dollar behemoth. And so HP kick-started this sandy slice of Northern California's transformation into the tech center of the world. But as Silicon Valley grew, so too did the influence and wealth it wields and the might of those who run it. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, how can big tech's power be checked? My guest is Ro Carner, the Democrat congressman for Silicon Valley since 2017. As I look over this crowd, I also see what makes Silicon Valley so special. I see faces from every ethnic group across the globe. This here is the promise of America. He represents a district bursting with giants, from Apple to Intel. And yet the progressive congressman isn't afraid to criticise the titans he represents and Capitol Hill's ability to rein them in. The technology illiteracy in Congress is appalling, and that's why we haven't had thoughtful legislation. But the grandson of an Indian independence fighter is optimistic about the role his district can have in addressing the widening polarisation in America. His new book, Dignity in a Digital Age, lays out a vision of how the digital economy can work better for all of us. Congressman Rokana, welcome to The Economist Asks. And thank you so much for having me. I'm curious about something, Congressman. You're born and bred East Coaster. You now represent a West Coast district, California's 17th, a.k.a. Silicon Valley. What took you westwards in the first place? Well, I was born in Philadelphia in 1976. My parents are still there. But I was drawn to Silicon Valley. I thought at the end of the 1990s that this was a place doing extraordinary things. I was in law school And I also thought the intersection of technology and law would be an interesting place to uh, focus. And so I went out there uh, for a summer job and uh, really loved it and then ended up settling there. And you're the son of Indian immigrants to the U.S. And you've said that only in America is your story possible. I'm struck by the fact that a number of people actually have come on the show who've uh, thrived and flourished very well say that. And in each case, It has a slightly different logic. So what's your thinking on that? My story is a a, a remarkable one uh, with my grandfather having spent four years in jail in the 1940s uh, during the Quit India movement uh, and 15 years as part of India's independence movement. He was a secretary for 
uh, Lala Lajpat Rai. And then my parents came to the United States, my father in uh, 1968. Uh, he married my mother. They both came and settled in Philadelphia. I was born there and, and grew up there. It was a community that was probably at the time 95% white, Christian. I'm of Hindu faith. Uh, but I had teachers who believed in me, little league coaches who believed in me, neighbors who believed in me. And at the age of 40, uh, I was honored to be elected to represent a district that uh, arguably has produced more wealth than any region of the world at any time in history. I mean, the market cap of my district and surrounding areas with Apple, Google, Intel, Yahoo, Cisco, LinkedIn, Tesla is over $11 trillion. And I think that that's something in America that's possible to be the son of immigrants and to have that kind of possibility. You've mentioned your family background and your maternal grandfather was part of that Indian independence movement and indeed served in the first parliament in India after independence. You've said he was a, a legend. Is this kind of family history law or is there something there that guides the way that you approach your own political career in very different times, very different challenges? Well, he was a greater person than me. Uh, and I, I say that not with false modesty, but with objectivity. I mean, there was a courage to what he did. He risked everything he had for a, a cause. And when I think about the challenges of uh, my political career or our collective politics in America on voting rights or other issues, I think, wow, these odds are uh, so much better than anything uh, my grandfather faced. Uh, so in some sense, his career is my conscience. Like any politician, I am tempted to look at poll numbers and what I want to do to win in advance. And I always think of his life as one of uh, really devoted to, to a cause with courage and integrity. And in another sense, you know, when I lost, I lost two times for Congress before I won. Uh, his example uh, gave me a resilience and a perseverance to say my odds, again, are considerably better than, than his odds were to see either a free India or certainly to become part of India's parliament. You mentioned courage and integrity there, and they, they seem to be two qualities some people would say rather lacking in terms of uh, where we're getting to in the argument about big tech and its power. I mean, do you believe that we've been challenging enough, you reference the immense wealth there of, of the district that you represent. But the, the dream feels to have soured. Well, there's no doubt that there have been misinformation, disinformation, and negativity in these platforms that have undermined uh, public discourse. I think that the problem was a naivete the sense that if we just had a platform that everyone talked on, that somehow we were gonna further democracy, uh, further peace, further understanding. Well, if it was that simple, you wouldn't need political philosophy. I mean, you wouldn't need any political theory. The reality is people have spent generations thinking about how do we have proper discourse? I mean, we're engaged in one form of discourse here, a respectful dialogue that hopefully ideally enriches the public uh, debate. And I don't think Silicon Valley has spent enough time thinking about how do they design these platforms in a way that actually enhances democracy and taking their obligations seriously enough as stakeholders of democracy. 
You've written a book uh, which addresses this subject and also the question of what kind of political philosophy we would need to take on or would be most helpful in taking on the might of big tech. It's called Dignity in the Digital Age. You have a rallying cry there to democratise the technological revolution. That seems to be a tall order, given that the technical revolution seems to be rather better at controlling its own direction than it is at taking on board critiques or amendments. Are you a little too hopeful? It's a fair critique. People would have to uh, to read it to find out. But let me say what the two areas uh, that I focused on. First, I do think it is possible to democratize the opportunity to participate in the digital economy and in this wealth generation. There are gonna be 25 million digital jobs in the United States. And that is more than manufacturing and construction combined by 2025. The reality is that we can't have all of those jobs and all of that wealth concentrated in Silicon Valley, Austin, New York, Seattle, Miami. More people have to have the opportunity to participate. And we've seen post COVID that a lot of work has gone remote that venture capitalists in Silicon Valley are investing and hiring in all different parts of the country. So there is an opportunity now to say, you can be in your hometown, you can be in a mid-sized city, and you can still participate in the digital economy. Uh, And isn't this the hope of the digital economy, the decentralization? In fact, the concentration is a paradox. And a lot of what I'm arguing is, let's have policy that facilitates that decentralization so that we're actually creating opportunity in towns and communities that saw deindustrialization, that saw their jobs leave, uh, and then in part, in my view, gave rise to, to a right-wing populism because of those economic conditions. The second part says, well, okay, if we're gonna do this uh, in terms of democratizing the economic part, uh, we also need to democratize these platforms. It shouldn't just be Zuckerberg and Dorsey making all of the rules. Uh, and maybe if there are people participating in the digital economy in rural America, in black and brown communities, they get to have some stake in developing the architecture uh, of these platforms. And these platforms need to think more critically about their role as stakeholders in democracy, making sure violence isn't there, having some sense of uh, what is actually enriching the public debate instead of just being sites that spread rumors. And and that's sort of the argument of what I think could help with that, both policy-wise, Internet Bill of Rights, and then also voluntary things that these companies could do. I think we're talking about two different things here. I think the idea that companies and technology can help replace deindustrialized jobs is an interesting one. And you think you would also perhaps admit that there's quite a lot of work to do there in terms of being able to get get those jobs to the right places and get people skilled and motivated in large parts of America and indeed large parts of the industrialized world to do that. I'm less convinced that that, although it seems like a good policy objective in itself, is the answer to the overconcentration of wealth and power in Silicon Valley. I agree with you, actually. And I make that point in the book that there's still probably going to be a disproportionate amount of wealth in places like Silicon Valley. But at least we could have what I say sparkling nodes of activity elsewhere uh, in economic revitalization. But it's not sufficient just to have policies that distribute opportunity. 
there's a historic opportunity to do that because now we're swimming with the tide post COVID. All of these companies are going remote. People are realizing it's almost a forced experiment and saying everyone doesn't have to be 50 miles from Sand Hill Road. So if we have policies, uh, tax incentives, and some of the things I talk about with land grant universities, investing in a digital core and uh, investments of venture capital in other parts of the country, we can facilitate it. But secondarily, you need to have uh, antitrust enforcement so that you don't just have a concentration of wealth that is anti-competitive. And I talk about that. And you need to have an Internet Bill of Rights so that these big companies aren't able to take our data and monetize it in ways uh, that are targeting us for our attention and allow, in my view, then better deliberative forms uh, to emerge. So I don't think it's as simple as just distributive policies. Uh, I think we need also antitrust policies and some of the things I discuss with the Internet Bill of Rights. So if I'm one of the, the big five, why do I care? I used to think that perhaps this debate would go along the lines of tech companies don't want to be public enemy number one uh, in terms of kind of where they sit in the, the very fraught politics in America and also reverberations beyond and indeed many other societies that has been creeping up on them. I've now concluded that they don't really care that much. The business model is very robust. They are rather immune. So um, to be a bit discourteous, but why should they listen to you? Well, first, their poll numbers are actually very good. Other than Facebook, Apple and Google's poll numbers are around 60, 70 percent, even Amazon. And I've been very tough on Bezos and paying wages, but 78% approval. And that's because almost everyone in the middle class and upper middle class has three Amazon packages at their door. And so it is a challenge because they come, they get grilled by Congress, and then they go back and then they think, well, our poll numbers are much better than Congress's. Why why should we care? Uh, My argument to them is two things. Getting to care about distributing opportunity, economic opportunity, is one in their self-interest. They need more talent. The cost of living is very high in Silicon Valley. And they understand that a country can't have this kind of concentration of wealth in other places that have been deindustrialized without having a backlash, perhaps not just to their companies, but to immigration, to trade, to globalization, all of which hurts them. And so you see now with Google actually, and Microsoft and other companies, partnering with HBCUs, partnering with rural communities to the embers of a sense of distributing the economy. On what they need to do on antitrust and what they need to do on the Internet Bill of Rights, I don't think that that's going to be voluntary. Congress needs to have the courage to pass some of those laws to say that you have to opt in before someone can use your data, to say that a big platform can't discriminate against uh, sellers. And then at some point, there has to be a cultural change. You know, uh, Habermas, who I rely on and think of as one of the the great philosophers, has this brilliant article in Public Sphere where he coined the term. And he says newspapers, like The Economist, uh, have a commercial basis, but they're not fully commercialized. In other words, when you're doing this interview, yeah, you probably care whether anyone listens to it. And The Economist wouldn't have me on if they thought no one would listen to it. But that's not the only purpose. You care about asking tough questions, thoughtful questions, and contributing to the public debate. There isn't that sense of culture among these tech companies. They deny right now their purpose as stakeholders in democracy. It's purely profit maximization. And we need the regulations and laws, and hopefully that leads to a cultural change 
in social media where they need more thinkers and philosophers and ethicists in understanding their stake and role in democracy. The idea of a sort of regulation around hate speech seems very attractive on the face of it. I think a lot of us would sort of welcome it, if you like, with our moral gut instinct. But it does quickly get very problematic, doesn't it? As we, I think you're rather supportive of, of the idea. And for some people, it's very clear what hate speech is. But there's also the very contested field of, am I free to say exactly what I like about vaccines? Or do I have to respect any idea of scientific truth? There is still a very libertarian underpinning of free speech, often in a very robust form underlying these tech platforms. So uh, are you sure that you could ever really get to a form of agreement that would allow free speech, but would constrain the things that you believe to be so toxic? Well, it's always going to be a dilemma. It's been a dilemma since you've had liberal democracy, but we could do better than we're doing now. Here's what I say. In the United States, the famous case is the Brandenburg case, which is uh, a strong First Amendment case. And, and the American tradition of the First Amendment is stronger than the European tradition in terms of giving more deference to speech. But even under Brandenburg, there is a sense that you can't incite violence. So when Facebook, for example, knew that there were specific threats against lawmakers and against Vice President Pence before January 6th, and their private security came to them and told them, hey, we should do something, then they made the deliberate decision not to report that. That, in my view, should be illegal. We should say that if there is a specific incitement to violence, and especially if someone can go to court and show that, these social media companies have to take that speech off. Currently, that doesn't exist. Second, beyond that, social media companies have created these boards and uh, are looking at what speech may be harmful to equal participation on their on their sites. And here you do risk them engaging uh, too much in in censorship uh, and they have to weigh uh, very carefully uh, the ability to have free discourse with the sense of equality of participation. But my sense there is if we have more discursive forums, if we have a plurality of these forums, uh, then we can have people have responsible social media ethics without just having a few people make the decisions. The problem right now is you only have a few big platforms. Two key bills, of course, on legislative agendas. The first, the infrastructure bill. President Biden persuaded the progressive caucus to vote for that. The second is the Build Back Better bill, which passed through the House but didn't pass the Senate at the end of last year. There's been a lot of scrapping, a lot of trading of of interests and priorities. Do you feel disappointed that that hasn't passed more fully? I do. I think the key thing right now is for the president to push America as a nation of producers. We've seen that we're too dependent on other countries for our manufacturing, for our supplies. So there's a bill, the United States Innovation and Competition Act, that would help create semiconductor industry in the United States that would deal with the supply chain, that would help create advanced manufacturing and various technologies in the United States. And then on Build Back Better, and I've had a good relationship with Senator Manchin and other senators, my view is the bit most urgent thing is the climate. I mean, we saw uh, Glasgow in the conference, but if we don't do something big, we're really going to be in a very difficult position. And so I have been telling my colleagues in the Progressive Caucus, let's just get something significant on climate 
and make sure that we pass it. Well, you, you anticipated my next question, really, Congressman, in the sense of what would you prioritize salvaging and why? But I would imagine Progressive Caucus has itself quite a, a range of views. Some people would say that basically chopping up this bill, breaking it up to get it through the, the Senate, then starts to retreat on, on ambition and influence, indeed. It would be a retreat. I guess I just don't see what prospect there is in tackling climate change if the United States does nothing in 2022 on climate. Uh, We're not then going to meet the president's goals of 50 percent reduction by 2030. And if we don't do it now, uh, there's a danger. Obviously, no one knows how the 2022 elections are going to turn out. So this is one of our best opportunities. I would focus on that and then I would do universal preschool. You know, I was reading somewhere France has had universal preschool in some form since 1890. You know, by the time you're six, whether you're a son of a billionaire or son of a a working class family, you start at a pretty decent level. It's about time the United States had universal preschool. So I would focus on climate, universal preschool, some expansion of health care and pass that. And I think we could pass that out of the Senate. How would you assess the relationship between progressives and moderates? A lot of blows have been traded, and that's among those who are obviously a very wide church, but on the same side of the American party battle. We're about to face another big challenge on uh, Russia and the threat to Ukraine. Sounds to me, and it's not me if I'm wrong here, but sort of this is a natural, another big divide, isn't it, coming to haunt the Democrats? Well, most of the Democrats, I think, have been happy with the president's leadership on Russia. He's been tough. He's been tough on Putin. He understands Putin's aggression is uncalled for, that you can't appease someone who's bullying. At the same time, he understands that our real challenge is the rise of China. So my sense is there's consensus so far, at least, on the president's uh, approach. The broader challenge, yes, there have been differences. I guess my approach is I don't question people's motives. Uh, So I don't go out there saying so-and-so is a liar or so-and-so is corrupt or so-and-so is bought. Uh, And I just say they're philosophical differences. How do we resolve them? But when I look at the broader scale of America, my concern is less the divisions within the Democratic Party and far more the divisions between Democrats and Republicans, between urban areas and rural areas, between people who have such different conceptions of what America should be We had President Obama who aspired to bring these strands together. Uh, And I think even he would say that deep aspiration he has has not succeeded yet. In fact, we're more divided today than probably any time in my lifetime. You know, the book I wrote at its deepest level was a a search for how we lessen some of that bitterness. It's only one angle into it. But that is our big challenge of how we emerge as this multiracial, multiethnic democracy. I know that you you need to go, so I'm going to I'm going to do that old trick. I'm going to combine a last question with our goodbyes and say I know you've uh, ruled yourself out of running for Vice President Harris's Senate seat this year. Uh, still, you look like a likely candidate who might like to be introduced as senator next time we have you on the show. Am I right? Well, I would never rule anything out, and I don't say this as a, a political answer, but I really believe that the job I have today of representing the heart of Silicon Valley is an extraordinary job, both in terms of its potential to do good and in terms of putting a check on on places uh, that haven't been working well. I I think we have to understand the role of technology in shaping jobs and in shaping democracy. And I'm having an impact from this 
this seat. So that's not to say, I, like any politician, I have ambition. And, and I think ambition is a good thing if directed towards a good end. And certainly I could see other possibilities. But I would be very careful before giving up a seat in Congress representing Silicon Valley, which I think is an extraordinary privilege and honor. Congressman Ro Khanna, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. And we'd love to know what you think. How can governments rein in the might of big tech? The congressman spoke about how his grandfather is his political hero. So I'd like to know who yours is. Write to us at podcasts at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. As tensions continue to rise in Eastern Europe, Vladimir Putin is not only making manoeuvres by physical borders, but online ones too. Russia's president is building his own firewall to separate his tech industry from the West's, and The Economist has delved into these ambitious plans. You can read that article on our website and also become a subscriber today. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producers are Alicia Burrell and Julia Johnson, and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.